0: I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I love Daniel. I I love him so much, and I'm so glad he shared his story with us. Um, And I I miss whenever students go off, I'm sad when they leave because I miss those close relationships with them in the community. I actually have a super nerdy text chain going on right now with Daniel and a bunch of students where we were diving into statistics this week, and I'm going to talk about that more later. But um, this morning, we are continuing our series on the book Witness, or on the book of Acts, and uh, it's our series titled "Witness: The Ongoing Acts of the Holy Spirit." Um, and this morning, we're going to look at Acts 10. Um, and and before we do that, um, I have to show you a picture of Lucy. Uh, yeah, she's super cute. Um, and this is a super relevant picture, as you'll see in a little bit. Um, but but before we jump into our passage today, which is Acts 10:1 through 11:18. Um, We need to remember a little bit about where we've been. In Acts 1-8, we're told that um, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive the Holy Spirit in power, and you will go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then we come to Acts 8, which we talked about last week, where all of a sudden the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and they become believers. And that was a radical moment. Because for Jews and Samaritans, they did not like each other. They had religious differences. They had geography They had all of these differences that at the end of all of those, when the Samaritans came in, it was a shocking moment. And then if you're following our reading plan this week, you would have read an even more shocking story. There was this man named Saul who persecuted the early church. And Saul was dragging Christians out of their homes in Jerusalem and imprisoning them, men and women. And he was so angry and so against the church that we see that he's not only doing that in Jerusalem, but he gets permission to go do it in other places. So as he's traveling to go persecute more Christians, he has a vision from the Lord. And Saul is asked by Jesus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What are you doing? And, 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 and Saul, out of that, there's the, the Lord gives another vision to another man, and that man is in Damascus. Saul winds up there. This man prays over Saul, lays his hands on him, and Saul receives the Holy Spirit. And the enemy of the gospel, Saul, becomes the believer, Saul, who is going to be the preacher, the missionary to the Gentiles, also named Saul. We'll talk about that next week. But, but it's so important because Saul becomes a believer after being a radical Enemy of the faith. But he was also Jewish. And I mean, functionally, the Samaritans were pretty much Jewish. They just wanted a way smaller Bible to look at. And so, everything that we've seen so far, as radical as it is, it's a bunch of people who fundamentally have the same theological views on the world the God of Genesis 1 who created, and the promise that he'd send a Messiah. And so, as radical as everything as we've seen in Acts 1 through Acts 9 has been, Today we're going to see something that flips it all even more on its head. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you for this passage because in this passage I find justification as one of your followers. In this passage we see that your movement is not for one nation or one people, but your movement is for all. And Lord, we pray as we spend time in your word today that you would open our eyes to your word. We pray you would open our ears to what you have to say. And Lord, we pray you would open our hearts to receiving your message. Lord, I pray that for all of us that at the end of this message, we would look at those around us in a very different way. I pray that we would feel an earnestness and an urgency to witness and and to just recognize that there are so many people in need of your word, in need of your spirit, in need of the life that you have to offer. I pray all these things in your name. I pray that these would be your words spoken through me and not mine. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Our story today begins at Caesarea. And Caesarea is a town along the Mediterranean. It's in kind of the Judea, Samaria area, but it's far north along the Mediterranean Sea. It's very far away from Jerusalem. And it's in this town that there was a man named Cornelius. And he was a centurion. And it's of note that he was a centurion because that means he was a Roman. In, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus is with his disciples and after they go to the mountain, right before Jesus delivers the, the big, the you will be my witnesses speech, right before that they say, Jesus, at this time will you restore the kingdom? And what they are saying is, will you overthrow the Romans? Will you overthrow the Gentiles? Will you put the Jews back on top? That's what they're asking. And the response, the response of Jesus is, no, you're going to be my witnesses. And in in this passage, we start off with a centurion. It's the first Gentile we're going to see in action in the book of Acts. And this centurion, he was a man. And you might be reading this thinking, okay, yes, he was a man. Cornelius is a man's name. But the passage, Luke makes sure to specify that he was a man. And he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And even though he was a Gentile, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, so about 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in, enter into his house, and say to him, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God has taken notice of your, of your prayers and your gifts to the poor. And now send men, men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, an important note here. When it says Simon, Simon is a Jewish name. Peter is a Greek name. Simon, is a Jewish name. And so the angel of the Lord makes sure that Cornelius goes, you're sending your men to go bring a Jew back. Simon, who is called Peter, saying it's Simon, a tanner's house. That's going to be very important. The next day, as the men, Cornelius sends his men on this journey. And as they were on their journey, it's about 30 miles south to Joppa, and they they leave with earnestness because they're going to make it there the next day. As, As they journey there, Peter he goes up on his housetop of Simon the Tanner's house at about the sixth hour, about noon, and he goes up there to pray, but it's also lunchtime. So while he's praying, he's getting hungry. And so he tells the people in the house, hey, can you make me some lunch? And they do. And while they're preparing it, he's up on the roof praying and he falls into a trance or a vision. And he saw the heavens open up and something like a great sheet was descending. And so It's descending, it's being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So Peter, who is hungry, sees just a smorgasbord, a buffet of all of these things. And there came a voice to him that said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So Peter, who is hungry, the Lord tells him, just eat. And he says, no, no. He probably wonders, am I being tested right now? Now, an important quick side note, if you have certain Bible translations for this passage, the rise, Peter, kill, and eat is going to be read. Um, but, but there's no evidence of it being Jesus' words. I mention this because Peter is going to recount this story two more times, and he never mentions he hears the voice of his Lord. He says, a voice from heaven. I don't think this is Jesus speaking to Peter. It's a little thing, but I think it matters because I think if it would have been the voice of Jesus, I think Peter might have responded a little differently. Not sure, though. But the point is, is, he's like, no, I'm not going to eat these common and unclean things. Now, we got to come back to this Lucy picture. Um, our sermon title is "Bunnies, Bears, and Bacon," and Lucy is wearing a bunny shirt. She's wearing a bear hoodie, and you can't tell, but that's that's a pig, bacon. Um, I I'm just so clever in what I make her wear. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. The point is, is that bears, bunnies, and bacon would have all been things on the sheet. There would have been all kinds of animals. There would have been all kinds of birds. There would have been all kinds of things, reptiles, that for a Jewish person or a Samaritan person even, you would have never ate these things because if these things entered you, it made you unclean. The Jews were not allowed to eat these things. If I can go one step further, um, we have a Noah's Ark toy Um, And theologically, I wonder about this Noah's Ark toy because it comes with no clean animals. Um, It has a whole bunch of unclean animals. But the point of all this is, is that for Peter, who is a good, devout Jew, even though he's a Christian, he's still following Old Testament law. And so when the Lord presents him with all this, he says, no, I will not eat this. And the voice came to him a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And Peter, who is still hungry, is now inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might met. And behold, while he's sitting up on the roof wondering about what just occurred, the, the men who were sent, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Now I draw your attention to stood at the gate, because here we start to see what this passage is really about. You see, in in, in ancient. Israel, in these times, one of the the, the the biggest challenges between Jews and Gentiles was that for a Jew, if a Gentile entered your household, you were considered unclean. It was a sin on your part. You were ritualistically unclean for that moment. And so the Jews would not associate with the Gentiles in that way. They would not allow the Gentiles to to enter their homes at all. When Jesus was on trial, the the farcical Pharisees and the judges of the Jewish people, what do they do? They don't enter Pilate's home so they can be clean for the Passover while they murder an innocent man. That's how seriously the Jews took this. And Peter even took it this far. So Cornelius, who was a devout man, who was well thought of by all the Jews, when he sends his servants, the men, they know that they can't enter Simon's house. And so they stand outside and they call to him. Hey, is Peter there? While Peter was pondering, he's still up on the rooftop. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And so now we learn that it's the Spirit of God at work telling him, Go, go, follow this. I've sent them to do this now. And Peter went down to the men And said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and and to hear what you have to say. So they tell him, we want to hear the message you have for us, Peter. An angel came to tell Cornelius to tell us to come visit you, to get you to come back with us to Caesarea. And so we came with haste. Peter, at this point, invites them in to be his guests. The men who stood outside that were Gentiles are now invited into the home. And right now we see the start of a radical transformation in the church. Because at this moment, Peter inviting them in, this makes that whole household unclean that Peter is inviting them into. In fact, when Cornelius sent his men, we can assume he sent them thinking, go get Peter and then after you find Peter, tell him, we need you to come visit visit in Caesarea and then let's find different places to stay tonight. Because, because they're not allowed to stay in the same place, so they would have stayed somewhere different and then Peter would have stayed in that house and then the next day they would have traveled kind of together and headed up to Caesarea. But they would have stayed distant from each other because Jews and Gentiles don't mix. But Peter, when he hears their message, without hesitation, he invites them in to be his guest. And then the next day he arose and went with them. And some of the brothers, the Jews, who were now believers, Jewish believers, because we're talking about Jewish believers at this point, because there's no other kind of believer besides Samaritan believers, which are functionally Jewish believers, of the brothers from Joppa. So they came and they accompanied Peter on their way to Caesarea to talk to Cornelius. And on the following day, so they make haste. They On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Entered. They went into. This is a very common word in Greek, but this is a very uncommon word to use to say entering a city. It's a word that you would use to enter a house and now it's being used differently. Luke is drawing our attention with something common to something uncommon. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius knows that that this Peter, this Simon who is called Peter, is coming to visit, to share a message with him. And what does he do? He immediately starts telling other people, hey, join me. Come in. Come come join me. And, And so they are all there. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he fell down at his feet, and he worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. Now what's interesting, but Peter lifted him up. Peter doesn't just say, hey, stand up, this is weird, stand up, stop worshiping me. He lifts him up. The the implication is he probably touched him. And a Jew, a Jew, even a Christian Jew at this time, does not touch a Gentile. But he lifts him up, And he says, I too am a man. But he doesn't say the man word we've been highlighting. He uses a different word here. And the word here is, I'm a human. I'm just like you. I'm not a god. Stop worshiping me. I'm a human. And as he talked, Peter and Cornelius are talking, he went into the home of a Gentile. You would have kind of expected Cornelius is out there talking to him and then Cornelius is going to bring his whole household out. But no, Peter goes in without hesitation and he found many persons gathered every single one of these people the implication that peter is sharing a roof with them is that by the standards of the jewish conduct of the day any single one of those people would have made peter unclean but something's happening here and and he said to them you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a jew and and what's interesting is that word jew it's translated jew but it's actually jew man in Greek, and they get rid of it because it seems weird, and and man is a very common word, but Luke takes a common word and uses it so much to stress something that we're going to see. He says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The fact that Peter is sitting in front of them is so radical and right after this Peter starts to tell Cornelius and, and those gathered about the vision he had and he tells them about the sheet that dropped from heaven and all the unclean animals and I wonder initially if the people would have been like oh you're calling us reptiles you're calling us bunnies you're calling us all these but but you're calling us pigs but but at the same time Peter tells them that and then tells them what God has made clean do not call common. And so he's telling them, the Lord is doing something here, and he finishes. And then Cornelius says, let me tell you, I at the ninth hour, I was praying, and I went into a vision, and the, 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 whole, the, the angel of the Lord entered into my home. The angel of the Lord entered into a Gentile's home to talk to a Gentile, to send the Gentile to go get a Jewish believer to come back and then tell them about Jesus. And when Peter hears that, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is a radical change from what the Jews believed at that time. And when I say Jews, I mean even the Jewish believers. In Acts 1, Jesus says, you will go to Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, there are men from all of the known, like there are Jewish men there from all of the known world at that time that are back in Jerusalem for festivals, and many of them become believers. And functionally, if the gospel is just for Jews, the book of Acts ends at Acts 2.42, We don't need the rest of it if it's about just Jews becoming believers. And in Acts 8, we see Samaritans become believers. And when they become believers, the Jews realize, man, there's a lot more people that we're going to have to share the gospel with. And now we come to Gentiles and Peter says, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And the gospel spreads in this moment, or the the mission of the gospel becomes so much wider and bigger and clearer than it ever has before. Peter goes on to preach the gospel, and here is what he says. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power." He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses, witnesses of all of this. He did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to those of us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This man who was killed by being hung on a tree rose again, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, to witness that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter preaches the gospel to these Gentiles who have a completely different background, a second week in a row, completely different background than the Jews. And and he is telling them the same message and he is inviting them in. Even though they don't follow kosher law, even though they're not circumcised, even though they, they functionally would be considered unclean by all of the Jewish believers, Peter in this moment understands. And not only does Peter understand, it is absolutely affirmed in the very next thing that happens. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. If you remember last week, we talked about the Samaritans and how they begin to receive the word of God. They begin to believe and they begin to be baptized. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come until the apostles from Jerusalem come and lay hands on them. And we talked last week about how I, I, I think, and it's an argument from silence, but I think that what's happening there is that the Samaritans are being brought into the Jerusalem idea because they're technically Jews. They're, they're, they're from the same line of Abraham for the most part, and they're functionally following the book of Moses, and now they're being told the whole Old Testament is valid, and you're being brought in. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And so they received the Holy Spirit But they're already circumcised. They already follow kosher law. They already kind of fit into a Jewish worldview. They just have to read more Bible now. But now the Gentiles are hearing these things. They're believing. And what happens when they believe? They don't have to wait for the laying on of hands. They don't have to wait for anything else. What happens is as they believe, the Holy Spirit comes in power and shows Peter and those who are with him that these Gentiles, the message is just as much for them as everyone else. And let me tell you, church, I am not from Jewish descent, so when I read this passage, I am super grateful. Let me tell you also, Luke, the author of this book, was a Greek physician. I think there's a reason he spends so much time on this story and he uses the language he does and draws attention to it. As a Greek physician, he came from a Gentile background and was brought in. The New Testament is full of stories, and and when you read in the epistles about there were different movements in the church, there there was the circumcision movement that said you had to follow all of the Jewish law. But Luke, in one story, puts rest to this because he says the Holy Spirit came on them when they weren't circumcised. These men were not circumcised or anything, and the Holy Spirit entered into them in the same way that it entered into us. And from there we see the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. So the Jewish believers, note that they're not called the Jewish believers. It's the believers from among the circumcised. Because now there's believers who are circumcised and there are believers who are not. There is a new category right now in Christian history in this moment that has never been there before. And, And they see what had happened and they, with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them, the Gentiles who, again, they haven't been circumcised and that would have been a big deal back then. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. They are doing the exact same thing that happened in Acts 2. And they are not people who were with Jesus throughout his life. They're not like the apostles who followed him and saw him at the resurrection. These are people who are many steps removed from that. Who when they hear the message, the Holy Spirit comes on them in the exact same way. Way. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized. And so Peter and the the men from Joppa who were with him, they begin baptizing them in the name of Jesus Christ. No, they've received the Holy Spirit and they do still get baptized. Then they ask, the, the Gentile believers ask Peter to remain for some days. And so he stays there with them a Jew remains a guest of Gentiles because they're all believers and those other labels don't matter nearly as much anymore. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God, just like when they heard about the Samaritans. But this time, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, when he returns, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And it's here, this is the only mention of the circumcision party in the book of Luke. Um, I don't think Luke wants to give them even this if he could. He wants to give them as little mention as possible because what they bring is nonsense. They say, follow these Old Testament laws to the T because if you don't do that, you can't follow Jesus. And, and they, they bring burdens that don't need to be there. And, and, and what happens in this is that they are, sent, when it says they're criticizing Peter, they're not just criticizing Peter, they're questioning his leadership. They're cre- questioning what he's done. They're calling him sinful. They're saying, if you were with Gentiles, if you were in their homes, if you entered their homes, you sinned. And if you ate with them, you sinned. And note the language of you entered to uncircumcised men. And it's here in this passage that we see it all come together because, because there's a real tension here. There's a real tension here because what did the early church do? Rich talked about it in communion. And, and, and the, the early church gathered together. They broke bread daily. They prayed together. They were like rubbing elbows every day, eating meals together, worshiping together in each other's homes. And now Peter's gone and he's brought in people that if they try and come and join the church, well, what does that mean? Do we have to let them in our homes? Not only is this uncomfortable, it, it begins to say, well, well, what are we standing on? Are we standing on the Old Testament anymore, Peter? What on earth are you doing? If, if you're willing to go into their homes, these uncircumcised men, you're, you're sinning. That's, that's what's at stake here. And, and if this is true, it means a whole lot of things. One, it means that are we going to have to invite Gentiles into our homes the same way? Because then you're going to make us sin too. That's what they're saying. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. But this is the implication of this. This is why they're accusing him and criticizing him. And they're against what he's bringing up. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna read everything. We've we've gone through a lot of Bible already, but um, Peter repeats everything pretty pretty verbatim. Um, he just changes a few things as he goes, and so I'm gonna focus on those. So Peter begins and he explains to them. What, what does he say? He's like, I'm on the I'm on the rooftop. I'm praying. I'm hungry, and all of a sudden these sheep descends from heaven. I'm in a vision, and it's telling me rise, kill, and eat. And I'm like, no. But Peter uses different language. By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He shifts the word here. It's a new word. And and Luke uses this common word to show us something. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. What's happening here is Peter showing them entering a home is not, if I've been made clean, I can enter a home, but also they can enter our homes. That's what's happening here. Peter is saying the, the boundaries you're putting on this are wrong and he tells them about Cornelius' vision, and then he tells them about when he starts preaching, and he says, As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord in Acts 1-5, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter is saying, Look, we have all these Jewish traditions that we hold very high. But God, God ha, we're part of a new covenant now. We're not just the nation of Israel anymore and we're not just Jewish believers. We're, we're now a part of this new movement of Christians who follow Jesus. We're a part of believers whether circumcised or uncircumcised. We, we are part of this new movement that is for any and all who call upon the name of the Lord. And, and he tells them this, and he tells them how they received the Holy Spirit. And the circumcision party in this story is questioning Peter. They're criticizing Peter. And what do they do when they hear that the Holy Spirit had come into the Gentiles too? They fell silent. And after they fell silent, that, that means, the fell silent there means they quit with their objections. They quit with their, their, hey, what you did was wrong. They quit with their criticisms. And instead, they all glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And it's in this moment, it's in this moment that the mission of the church becomes so much broader and more expansive than it has ever appeared before in Acts. We are on the other side, not from Jewish backgrounds. And so for us, we're like, oh yeah, this is obvious. But, but can you imagine in the early church, can you imagine in the early church in Jerusalem where they intentionally avoided the Gentiles? And who were the Gentiles? They were merchants. They were people of, of power and influence coming into Jerusalem and ruling over them. They were centurions. They, they were armies. They, they, they were the Roman people that, over, that, that were over top of the Jews. Pilate, Herod, the, the leaders of the people that, that were Romans that were over them. They were the oppressors. And now a Roman centurion has become a believer, and now all those people that they avoid because of cleanliness and because they're the oppressors, now they have to start looking at those people and say, are they a part of this kingdom too? I want them out of my kingdom, but God's saying they're a part of the kingdom. So what do they do with that? It changes the entire mission. From this point in the book of Acts, we're going to see a shift. We've been in Jerusalem. We've been in Jewish areas. And now all of a sudden, we're going to start really shifting the gospel message out to the Gentiles. And we're going to see that this message is not for one people. It started in one people. It started in Jerusalem. But it is for all people everywhere. God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is a message that is true for each and every person today. That is a message that that we have to respond to, but it is a message that is out there. And so at the end of this church, what I think would happen in this moment is I think that everyone would say, wow, that's pretty cool. And they'd glorify God. And then as they started to walk home, they'd start noticing a whole lot more people. They'd see that soldier on the corner and say, oh, huh, this is for him. Maybe. Yes, yes, it is, it is. And and they wouldn't want to because of cultural bias, because of prejudice. They would have said, I... <sighs> but it's for them. It's for them. God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is for all people. Now, in a moment, we're, we're going to land this. But before we do, I want to say something really important. If you are out there today and you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have never received the Holy Spirit, if you have never given your life to Jesus... God has granted repentance that leads to life to anyone and everyone who will call on the name of Jesus to be saved. And so, so if you have never accepted that gift, what I want to encourage you to do today is I want to encourage you to just recognize that on our own, we are sinners. We cannot change our status before God on our own. But when Jesus came, when God sent his son to die on the cross, he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he rose again, it showed that everything he had claimed was true. And when he rose again, he invited all of us to be a part of his kingdom. And, and he invites us to be a part of his kingdom if we will accept that free gift of his death on the cross, if we will be covered with his blood to atone for our sins, something that on our own we cannot do. But if we repent and say, Jesus, I want to be a part of your kingdom, I want the free gift that you offer me, then then the response, and at the end of this, God will grant us life. And it's such a beautiful thing. And if today, as you've heard this, for the first time you're responding, I want to encourage you to just just do it. Just pray to the Lord, say, Jesus, I, I want to follow after you. And I want to encourage each and every person here, if you've never received the Holy Spirit, to think. Am I a believer? Because the big idea of this message is that the gospel needs to go to more people than you think it does. And that's such a simple point, but it's a simple point that is absolutely lost in the Christian culture in the United States. And it's sad because the gospel needs to go to more people. First off, the gospel needs to go to more people in the church who are passive, casual followers who do not actually have the Holy Spirit because they've never, never actually submitted their lives to Jesus. And and the point of this is that the gospel is for everyone. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And we all have access to it. But we don't get it from being a good person. Because if being a good person was enough, Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. God heard his prayers. God lets him know, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. I'm responding to it by bringing someone to tell you about Jesus because it's not enough to be a good person by any standard of this world. Because our sin keeps us from it. In fact, his men talk about him to Peter and they say he was well spoken of by the Jewish nation. Not enough. He, and and at the, he was directed by an angel. If Peter wouldn't have responded, and of course Peter did respond, so we're in what ifs that don't really matter. But, but the point is, is that the Lord didn't say, oh man, this guy does enough. He prays, he gives to the poor, he does enough. This guy's a good person. He doesn't need the gospel. Instead, God says, because this guy is trying so hard to find me, I will find him. Him. The gospel needs to go to more people than you think it does. So I have a, a nerdy statistical thing, and I'm going to fly through it. Um, and if, if you have questions about it, just email me afterwards because I don't have time to talk about all my sources. Um, but, but I want to start with this. There are so many polls that talk about Christians being like 50 to 70 percent of our country. Um, and the definition of Christian in all of those polls that I have been able to source out and look at are dumb. It's like, oh, one in, I've been to church one, in, one time in the last six months. I'm a Christian. Um, that's how they define it. Or I identify as a Christian. I identify as a spiritual person. So I'm, I'm good enough. Um, when you start looking at polls that measure things that might actually indicate someone being a Christian, um, the number that starts to pop up is less than 20%. You see, because if all of the churches in our nation, if the attendance of all of those churches is an indicator of Christianity, and note, I don't think attendance at a church is an indicator, but we're going to start there, and we're going to play around there for a bit. If you look, it's less than 20% of our churches, and and really, it's more like 10%, but then you double it because you assume most people come every other week. And right now, I'm talking pre-COVID. Let me say this very clearly. There's no data on COVID. The only data we have is that most churches are shrinking by at least a third right now. It's true. They're shrinking by about a third. And churches that are starting to meet with a lot of regularity in places where they're able to are watching their congregations look a lot smaller. And they already looked a lot smaller than 2010, which is when all this data comes from. The the church in the United States is far less than 20%. And that 20% number includes churches that are fundamentally disagreeing with the Bible because I can't sort out the different denominations in all the data I've been able to find. Um, I have a nerdy amount of data on this, but the reason I talk about this is because this includes churches that have fundamentally said, well, we, we cave into culture. Culture matters more than God's word. And, 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 and that's included in this, and it includes mainline, to it, this includes the entire Catholic Church in the United States as well, which I, when I read the book of Acts, I struggle with the Catholic Church in every way. I know there are some believers in the Catholic Church, just like there are some believers in other places, but, but I just I, when I look at this number, this number is very generous, not even talking about what we talked about last week with the prosperity gospel churches and the churches that don't b- bother preaching anything from the Bible. This number includes all of that, and so this should be sobering. This should be absolutely sobering. And you may say, well, our community is different. Our community is different. But, but let me tell you, I do this thought exercise with the kids in our youth group. If you just look at all of the youth groups in Huntley, just Huntley proper, and then do that math of how many kids attend most of those, because you can get those numbers, um, you get to about 300. And then you look at just our local high school, and you got 3,000. That's 10%. One in 10 and then you assume, because our church is about 50-50 Huntley and other churches, and, and so then you say, well, maybe if we go into other communities, kids from our community go to other places. But let me tell you, as soon as you start adding in numbers of other communities, and as soon as you do it honestly, man, this number does not look good. This 20% drops down lower and lower and lower because there's this reality, church. There's this reality that the Christian movement in the United States is Tiny. But the reality is that many Christians believe, well, it's probably around 50%, 60%. I think most people in my neighborhood are probably Christian. I want to think that. I want to believe that because they act like me. They look like me. I don't see them doing anything really wrong. But the problem is is that we define Christian by, well, they look like good people. And Cornelius wasn't a good person. He was a good person, but he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't right before God. He wasn't good in the eyes of God until the Holy Spirit entered him until he responded to the gospel. And so we live in a community surrounded by people that uh, I just, I hear people all the time talk about, I don't know any non-believers. And I think one in five people that you know are probably not believers unless you're in a Christian bubble. And that one in five is at best because the church is, the church is much smaller than you think. And this is not to discourage you. This is to open your eyes to the fact that the gospel needs to go to far more people than we think it does. Because I hear Christians all the time talk about other places and them, and, and they, us and them, and they, and they talk about this like in our community, like we're just surrounded and brimming with Christians. But we're just talking attendance now. When we actually start talking about who's engaged, who's involved, who responds to the Holy Spirit, the number goes down even lower. And so as a church, we need to recognize this as a moment, not of, man, this is hard, this is a despair moment. Do you know what the early Jews in the early church thought when they realized, oh, the entire Roman Empire needs to be believers? They started to think, well, how are we going to do that? They started thinking, there are so many more people around us that treat us poorly and treat us wrong. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, it was about Roman citizens slapping Jews in the face. When Jesus said, walk another mile, he was talking about the Roman sh- soldiers could conscript someone and say, here, if, if, walk a mile with my equipment so I don't have to. And a Jew could be walking at the end of a long journey and that Roman soldier could say, do what I tell you to do. And they had to do it or face punishment. And, and, and Jesus told them, do more, go the extra mile. And now they're hearing these people are a part of the same message too. They are a part of God's family too. And what do they do? They don't say, Man, that's a lot of people. They say, "How do we do it?" And we immediately begin to see how the Holy Spirit begins to work in the believers to start taking the message to more and more people. We are halfway through this witness series. We are halfway through this witness series, and if you're in small groups, every week you are confronted with the question of how am I sharing my faith? How am I a witness of the Holy Spirit in my community today, this week? And I want to encourage you that that my prayer right now, my prayer right now is that we would see faith commitments through this. And I know it's hard in COVID. I know that. It's weird. It's different. Jess and I had the chance to sit down with some friends the other day that, that work at another church and we were just mourning. The fact that that everyone is so disconnected from, from what we would desire and what we want and there's fear that this winter it's going to be worse. And church, let me tell you, in the winter, if things do get worse, there's going to be a whole bunch of depressed people, a whole bunch of people that need life. They need the repentance that leads to life. They need the forgiveness that comes from the resurrected king who invites them to join his kingdom. They need the fellowship that we can have as believers. And we need to start looking around and thinking, wow, there are a whole lot more people that need the gospel than I think. We need to start looking in our communities, not as places where everyone thinks and acts like us, but we need to start wondering why we think and act like them. We need to start, not us and them as in, oh, they're Oh, we've got to stay away from them. But we need to start thinking, why are we not drawing them into something that's far more life-giving? Because we see in Ephesians, we see that, that we were all dead in our transgressions and Jesus died. And because of his death and because of God's grace, we have a chance to have life. That is what we are called to. That is the point of being a Christian. It's for us to have life, for us to be witnesses of what we've received in that life, life and life, and for us to tell other people about that. And we cannot miss that. We cannot go around looking at other people thinking, well, they they get it. They get it. They probably get it. I mean, they seem like good people. If God would have just let Peter walk on by or if Peter would have just said, you know, I don't really want to go to Caesarea. That's far away. There'd be a whole different story here and it would be much sadder. And of course, that didn't happen because Peter responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And so church, I want to challenge you to start responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but more, I want to challenge you to start when you're out just looking around with eyes open, thinking, how can I do this? I want to challenge you to not think, oh, I got to avoid everybody. I don't want you to be foolish. I, you know, I don't want you to be licking shopping carts on the handles or anything. I don't want you to be fools, but what I want you to think is how is the Holy Spirit calling me to look at these people around me and saying, man, these people need the gospel,' because that." First level of awareness is what we need to start having. Because for all of us, unless you're from a Jewish background, for all of us, this message right now is the reason that we get to be believers, the reason we get to follow, because God's message is for far more people than we think it is. And so church, I just want you to hear that, and I want you to take that and go and just look for people who need the gospel message. And if you're sitting there today and the the answer to this question is, I think I need it. Respond today. I, the beauty of this is uh, when, when Peter told the Gentiles about it, they didn't say, well, what do we need to do now? Instead, when they believed, when they accepted and received that gift, when they said, oh my gosh, Jesus, the resurrected King, I want to live my life for him. The Holy Spirit entered them and they joined God's family. They immediately became a part of the Christian community. It's not about what we do. It's about what we believe. And because of what we believe, we go do things. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, as a Gentile, from a Gentile background, I, I don't think I have any Jewish blood in me. I thank you that you sent your son as a Jew to your chosen people. And he lived, he walked on this earth, he did ministry by, by your spirit and by obedience to you, the Father. He healed, he cast out demons, and he preached the good news of your kingdom. I thank you that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, for my atonement, and for the atonement of each and every person that responds to you. And I I thank you that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And I thank you that it's something that he didn't just die, he rose again. And in rising again, we see that, that everything that he claimed in the gospels came true. Everything that the Old Testament pointed to about him came true in the resurrection. And so, Lord, we thank you that that you sent him, that he died, he rose again, he ascended, and that then you sent your Holy Spirit, that we could continue the work of Jesus and that we could be a part of your family. And Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us today, you would open our eyes to the people around us. Maybe it's when we take our trash out. Maybe it's when we're at the store, when we just casually pass someone. We pray that we would respond when your Spirit prompts us. I also pray, Lord, if there are people here right now who say, I I want to believe this. I don't know if I've ever believed this before. I, I, I don't think I've ever received the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that they would not leave today or if they're home watching, that they would not end their time today without finding out more. I pray that they would, that they would just accept that free gift you offer. And Lord, I, I pray for us as a church that our hearts would break for how many people in our communities don't know you. I, I pray that we would not settle for they look like us and act like us, therefore they must be us but instead we would recognize that it is only by your spirit that we are saved. I pray you would break our hearts and help us repent from where we're ignoring people around us and that you would help us turn to you, that you would help us recognize that the gospel is for far more people than what we think it is. Lord, we thank you that because of that message, we've received it. And we thank you that because of that message, we also get to be your witnesses. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As you leave today, I just want to encourage you. The gospel is for far more people than you think it is. I want to encourage you as you leave, just the people you walk by, the people you don't bump into because you can't bump into people right now, but the the people you see in your neighborhoods, the people you see taking out trash, mowing lawns, just, just think those people need this message the same way we did and the same way we've received it. Go in peace.